this morning. It's great to see everybody out. And of course, we want to say hello to everyone who is joining us online today, no matter where in the world you might be joining us from. Maybe you're on vacation. Maybe you're at the beach. We are thrilled that you are here and appreciate you joining us today. Well, hey, if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Jason Elliott, and I actually serve in our student ministry here uh, at the church. I get to work with our middle schoolers and volunteer with our high schoolers every single week. And occasionally I have the privilege of getting to come up here and bring the message on a Sunday morning. Well, last week, Andy kicked off our new series that we're going through the book of Judges. And this morning, we're gonna be taking a look at one of the more unique judges that God raised up. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, which we always encourage you to bring, you can turn over to Judges chapter three. And I'm really looking forward to going through this series because as Matt kind of mentioned earlier, I think there's kind of some misconceptions and maybe even some confusion around the book of Judges. Uh, for example, and y'all, I wish I were joking when I told you this, but I'm not. But whenever I was a little kid and we would talk about the judges in the Bible, I would always picture them as being the judges as we know them now in the courtroom. So I would picture these judges in their robes and their white wigs fighting their enemies with their gavels. And well, it turns out that I was pretty wrong about that. And the judges that we're talking about in this series uh, are, are a little bit different. Uh, so in this series, you can kind of think of the judges that we're talking about, maybe a little bit less like Judge Judy and a little bit more like a Conan the Barbarian character, right? So let's start off this morning, right about the same place that Andy left off last week. So Andy mentioned that whenever the Israelites were coming to the promised land, God gave, God gave them some very specific instructions on what they were supposed to do when they got there. And their instructions were this, you are supposed to drive out any of the current inhabitants that currently live in the promised land, any of the Canaanites, anybody who lives there, the Israelites were supposed to drive all of them out and have absolutely nothing to do with any of them. But as we find out in the book of Judges about chapter three, that didn't quite happen. Bible says, so the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and they were intermarried with them. Uh, the Israelite sons married their daughters and the Israelite daughters were given in marriage to their sons. And the Israelites served their gods. All right, so I'm gonna to talk to the parents for just a minute. Parents, have you ever told your children, don't do this very specific thing? And then you turn around and five minutes later, what are they doing? They're doing the exact very thing that you told them not to do. And that's pretty much how our story starts out this morning. So we're gonna pick it up in verse 12 and see how this story starts out. So it starts like this. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. Now that phrase there, once again, that's actually pretty important because what happens throughout the book of Judges as we're gonna find in this series is that there's this cycle that happens over and over again. And the cycle has four steps. So the Israelites would sin against God and typically the sin that they were guilty of was idolatry. And they would end up worshiping the gods of the people who lived all around them instead of worshiping the one true God. Now, God would see this sin and as punishment, he would allow the enemies of the Israelites to rise up against them and the Israelites would live in oppression for a while. Well, eventually the Israelites would see the error of their ways and they would cry out to God for help. 
And so God would raise up a judge to rescue them and redeem them. And for a while, the Israelites would live in peace until the cycle would start all over again. And so what we're seeing here in verse 12, this is the beginning of one of those cycles. It says, once again, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and the Amalekites as allies. And then he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, the city of Palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. All right, so the Israelites are living in oppression from this king, this king named Eglon. And they've lived under this oppression for 18 years. Now y'all, 18 years is a long time. So kind of put yourself in the Israelite shoes here, right? Some of them might not have even been able to remember what it felt like to live in freedom. And at this point, the Israelites have no hope that anything is ever gonna get any better. The Bible continues, it says this. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. All right, so the Israelites called out for help to God and God raised up a judge. This judge's name was Ehud. And there is something very unique about this particular judge. The Bible says that he was left-handed. Now, when I first read this in the Bible, I always thought that was a very peculiar thing that the Bible pointed out. Like, it just seems kind of odd for the Bible to call that specific thing out. Why is that in there? Well, let me add a little bit of context to this, all right? So back in biblical times, the right hand was seen as the hand of power and strength and all these good things. Matter of fact, Moses kind of talked about it in the book of Exodus. He said this, Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power, and your right hand, O Lord, smashes the enemy. You raised your right hand, and the earth swallowed our enemies. So yeah, everybody always saw the right hand as very strong. And there was other things too. Matter of fact, in the Jewish tradition, when a guest would come over to someone's house, say for dinner or something, the guest always sat at the right hand of the host because that was always the position of favor and honor. Peter kind of talked about this a little bit in the book of Acts, actually. He said, now Jesus is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And we still kind of use that term today if you think about it, right? It's like saying someone is your right-hand man. That means you think very highly of them. So if the right hand means strength and honor and all of these good things, why do you think that the Bible specifically mentions that Ehud was left-handed? Well, because conversely, being left-handed back in biblical times was seen as something very bad. In the original language, the, the word for left-handed was eter. And that word meant a person obstructed or impeded in the use of their right hand. See, back then, people saw being left-handed as a very bad weakness. And they thought that the only reason that someone would ever be left-handed was because something was obviously wrong with their right hand. 
It's not being left-handed as, as a disability or that you, were, you had a handicap of some sort. Matter of fact, saying that someone was left-handed back then was said with the same implication that someone had a physical disability. Like saying someone was deaf or blind or left-handed. Those things were all put into the same category. So now that we kind of understand the context of why the Bible says that Ehud was left-handed, who was Ehud in this story? Well, Ehud was the guy who the Israelites picked to deliver the tribute money for Israel. So what was this? Is a tri tribute money was kind of like the, the payment that you had to make if you were living under oppression to a different king. And so the hope was that you know, Israelites paid this tribute every year. Usually it was an annual payment. As long as Israel paid this tribute money every year, things wouldn't really get any worse for them. That was their hope. Now, things probably wouldn't get any better, but they hoped they would at least wouldn't get any worse. And so Ehud gets chosen to be the guy to take this tribute money to the king. And so he's getting ready for this journey and he's packing all this stuff up, right? And while he's doing that, he has an idea. The Bible says that, so Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. He brought the tribute money to Eglon who was very fat. Y'all, I love this story. It's like that verse right there, that should be our Ridge Kids memory verse next week. You know what? I love this story. Like it's full of these little odd details, right? Uh, first we have this judge that the Bible tells us is left-handed. And now we have this king that the Bible goes out of its way to tell us how fat he is. Now, Y'all, I can read your minds. I know exactly what you're thinking sitting there. You're thinking, all right, Jason, now for real, right? How fat was this guy, right? That's we're all thinking that. Let's just admit it. So, and I thought about what was the best way that I can convey this to you guys about this man's size? How big of a guy really was he? And I thought about it, and I think the best way that I could describe this is that we're talking about Java the Hutt here, y'all. Like, this is a very fat man, all right? All right, so the Bible says that Ehud, he made this double-edged dagger, and the blade on this thing is a foot long. Like, this is a gnarly blade. And he straps this dagger to his right thigh, and he hid this dagger under his clothing. But here's another oddly specific detail that the Bible tells us about this story, right? Why did Ehud strap his dagger to his right thigh? It just kind of seems odd to point that out. Well, think about it. If you were a warrior back then and you were carrying a sword or something and you were right-handed, it would actually be kind of awkward if you had your sword on your right thigh and you tried to draw it out. It wouldn't work very well. So most warriors, most fighters back then, when they were carrying a sword and if you were right-handed, you would strap your sword or dagger to your left thigh. That way you could draw it across your body much more easily. Now, knowing this, when a king was receiving visitors, the guards, kind of the secret service back then, would always check a person's left thigh to see if you were carrying a concealed weapon that could harm the king. But Ehud, being left-handed, strapped his dagger to his right thigh, a place that guards didn't typically check because no one would ever think that a man that was left-handed could ever pose a risk to the king. So, all right, Ehud, right? 
he's got this plan and he's, he's working through this whole plan that he's come up with and he's created this double-edged dagger and he's, he's strapped it to his right thigh and he's carrying this concealed weapon and he gets up there and he gets past the guards, right? And he gets into the room and he gets to King Eglon and the Bible says this. After delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those who had helped him carry the tribute. He didn't do anything. He never attacked the king. He never even drew his dagger out. He didn't do anything. And y'all, we don't know why. We don't know if he was scared in that moment. We don't know if he doubted himself or doubted his abilities, but he didn't do what he set out to do. He just starts walking home back to the life that they've lived for the last 18 years. But then it's interesting, the Bible tells us this point. It says that, but when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, when he's walking home, he turned back. And I want to stop here for just a minute because I think this is interesting. If you were here last week, Andy kind of talked about the importance of Gilgal. See, Gilgal was very very special to the Israelites, let's say, because Gilgal, back in Joshua chapter five, that was where God reestablished his covenant with Israel. And it's where the Israelites renewed their commitment to God. And I think that's what made Ehud turn around because he knew this special place. All the Israelites knew this special place. And he knew, he thought back on the last 18 years of oppression that he and his people had to live under. And he thought about it and he knew that nothing was gonna change if somebody didn't do something. So Ehud, he turned around and he went back to finish what he started. All right, so let's read through the next few verses here and find out what Ehud does. But when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. He came to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. So the king commanded his servants, be quiet. And he sent them all out of the room. So now it's just King Eglon and Ehud alone together in this room. Ehud walked over to Eglon who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. As King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, he pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh and he plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. Y'all, I love this story. So Ehud did not pull out the dagger. He says, I am not going back for that thing, ain't no way. And the king's bowels emptied. Then Ehud closed and locked the doors of the room and he escaped. After Ehud was gone, the king's servant returned and found the doors to the upstairs room locked. They thought he might be in the latrine in the room. So they waited. But when the king didn't come out after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. And when they opened the doors, they found their master dead on the floor. All right, so there's a lot going on here. So Ehud, he kills King Eglon, he locks the doors and he escapes. And when the servants come back, the doors are all locked, right? And they think he's in there handling his business. And, and you know, they don't wanna bother the king while he's, you know, sitting on his throne, let's say. I don't know how else to say it, but they wait and they wait and they wait. All right, so let's see how this story finishes. 
While the servants were waiting, Ehud escaped, passing the stone idols on his way to Syrah. And when he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, Ehud sounded a call to arms. Then he led a band of Israelites down from the hills. Follow me, he said, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. And so they followed him. And the Israelites took control of the shallow crossings of the Jordan River across from Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. They attacked the Moabites and killed about 10,000 of their strongest and most able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. So Moab was conquered by Israel that day and there was peace in the land for 80 years. And a little note on that, the 80 years of peace that Israel experienced here is actually the longest period of peace that Israel ever experienced in the entire book of Judges. But none of that would have ever happened had it not been for a left-handed man who saw an opportunity where everybody else could only see a weakness. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we can learn from Ehud is that God's strength comes through our weakness. I remember back whenever I was in sixth grade, I guess it was, um, our teacher wanted to play a game with all the students. And so he put everybody's name into a hat and everybody in the room had to pick out a name. And that person, whoever's name you picked out, you had to give a one word description of that person. And the goal of the game was to see if the rest of the class could figure out who you were talking about with just a one word description. And so we're going around this room, right? And, and it gets to my buddy. And my buddy, he has my name. And so he's sitting there and he's thinking really hard. And, and then all of a sudden he smiles. He gets this big smile on his face. Like he's got the perfect word to describe me. And it gets to be his turn. And, and see, he, he tells everybody and he shouts really loud. He says, wimp. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm like, really, seriously? That's the best word you can come up with, really? And y'all, without missing a beat, the rest of the class said, Jason. <laughs> now, y'all, I admit back then, I was kind of this scrawny little guy, right? But y'all, I don't know what hurt worse, my buddy calling me a wimp or the fact that everybody in the, else in the class instantly knew that he was talking about me. And so I got labeled that day with this little four-letter word. And by the way, in that moment, I had a few four-letter words I want to tell them too, but leave that for another day. But this word, it, it kind of stuck. And that word became my nickname for the rest of the year. And anytime we were out on the playground playing or anytime we were doing anything in the class, when someone wanted me, that's the nickname, that's the word that they would use to call on me. That label or that name that word, it became my identity. And y'all, for being real here for a minute, I think a lot of times we internalize the names or the words or the labels that the world kind of puts on us, right? We, we have these issues that we struggle with. We have these challenges that we face. We have these weaknesses that we're dealing with. And we kind of see them, they're so much a part of who we are, we kind of see them as a part of our lives and a part of our identity. But if I ask you a question, how would you finish this? I am something. How would you fill in that blank? You know, Ehud, he, he was labeled 
by the world. He was labeled as being left-handed. He was labeled as having a disability or a weakness, and everybody knew it. And maybe you feel like you've been labeled by the world because of some issue or some challenge or some weakness that you've dealt with for a long time too. For that blank, maybe you'd say something like, I am overweight, I am depressed, I am divorced, I am unemployed. Maybe it's a doubt that you have about yourself, like I am not a good enough parent, or I am not a good husband or wife. But you know what? I think we put so much emphasis on that blank. I think we put so much emphasis on how we see ourselves in these weaknesses or these struggles or these challenges that we completely miss the first two letters here, or the first two words. I am. I am. See, because I am, that's the phrase that God uses in the Bible to talk about himself, to describe himself. Because back in Exodus chapter three, God told Moses, he said, Moses, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt, out of slavery and into the promised land. And you know what Moses did? Moses started giving him all the reasons that he couldn't do it. He started telling God all about his issues, all about his struggles, all about his weaknesses. And he said, God, I'm unqualified to lead your people. And it was interesting what God told Moses. He said, Moses, go to my people and tell them that I am has sent you to them. And what God was telling Moses, he said, listen, Moses, I hear you, man. I hear you. I know all about your issues and I know all about your challenges and your struggles and your weakness. And I know all of these things, but even knowing all of that, I still know that you are the person that I want to lead my people. And guys, that is the absolute best part of this is because God sees us and our flaws differently than we do. Because if you read through the Bible, you will find that God has a history of taking flawed people and doing really amazing, huge, crazy things with them. David was told that he was too young. He ended up being one of the greatest kings of all of Israel. Uh, Peter couldn't control his temper. He literally cut a dude's ear off. Like there's some anger management issues that are going on there, right? But God used him to build Jesus's church. Uh, Rahab was known all throughout Jericho as a town prostitute. Samson, we're gonna talk about him here in a few weeks, but man, he had an ego. Society labeled all of these people as having a weakness. But see, where they see a weakness, God sees an opportunity. And y'all, that's exactly why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, the way that he did. And you know what? A lot of people missed it. Because the Jewish people, they were absolutely looking for a savior, but they were looking for a warrior. They were looking for a leader that could rise up and get them out from underneath the Roman empire. And the Greeks at the time, they were looking for a leader too, but they were looking for a philosopher that could come and enlighten them. But you know what nobody was looking for? Nobody was looking for a baby that was born in a manger. And nobody was looking for a savior who died on a criminal's cross. They thought that a savior should be strong and powerful and be able to overcome all these things, not have weaknesses like this. But God intentionally sent Jesus the way that he did because he wanted to show that salvation was his alone to give. And it could not be earned by somebody else's strengths. It could only be given by God's grace when we humble ourselves before him.
And so Ehud, he was different. Everybody knew he was different. But I think that's exactly why God chose him to do what he did. It was through his differences, through his weakness that everybody saw, he could do things that other people couldn't do. All Ehud had to do was be willing to trust God through it all. And you know, I think that's the other big thing that we can learn from Ehud is that in God's kingdom, availability is more important than ability. About 20 years ago, I remember thinking that having this feeling that God was telling me it was time to get serious about my faith. Now, I was a Christian. Uh, I firmly believed in Jesus Christ. I was in church every Sunday, but I would show up to church every Sunday and I would get my card punched and I wouldn't think about church much at all until the following Sunday. And I felt like God was saying, you know what? It's time to do something more. A couple of friends of mine were youth pastors and they actually came to me and said, hey, would you mind coming out to our church and helping us with our youth group? And you know, I thought about it and I thought about this feeling that I had that God was telling me it was time to do something more. You know, this really wasn't the opportunity that I would have chosen for myself, but it was the opportunity that God put in front of me. So I said, yes. Well, a little bit later, the youth pastors packed up and moved away. And then I felt like God was saying, all right, now I need you to step up and be the youth pastor of this church. And y'all, if I'm being honest, that scared the life out of me because I knew I wasn't qualified to be a youth pastor. I, I didn't have any formal training. I didn't have any credentials. And if I'm being for real, y'all, I just didn't know what I was doing. Um, but I prayed about it and I thought about it. And I ended up serving as the youth pastor of this church for the next 12 years. And I'll be honest with you, next to the decision to marry my wife, that was probably the best decision that I ever made. But let me ask you this. Why is it that when God comes to us with an opportunity to serve in his kingdom somehow, why is it that our first response is always, oh God, I can't do that. I'm, I'm not qualified. You know, maybe it's an opportunity to serve here at the church. Maybe it's an opportunity to coach in Big Kick or lead a Bible study or whatever it might be. Why is it that the first thing that we always do is list all the reasons that we can't do something? We say things like, well, God, I don't have all the necessary abilities to do that. But you know what? That's okay. Because God really isn't as interested in your abilities as he is your availability. And if I'm being real about it, I think sometimes God would rather have somebody that has weaknesses and thinks they're unqualified than somebody that has all the strengths and everything figured out. Because see, when we have all the right strengths, we have everything figured out, we know exactly what to do and how to do it, and things go really well, that person can tell the world, hey, look what I was able to do. God doesn't get any glory from that. But whenever God raises up someone that has this weakness, whenever God raises up that thinks they're not qualified to do something, when something goes really well for that person, that person says, hey guys, look what God did in this amazing situation, right? And that's exactly what Ehud did at the end of the story. Whenever he got all the Israelites together, he said, follow me for the Lord has given you victory over your enemy. 
He didn't say, hey guys, look what I did. He didn't say, hey guys, I killed the king. He said, the Lord has given you victory. And he gave God all the glory for it. All right, so this week, what are a few things that we can do to better serve God in our weaknesses? First thing is this. I think I need to change my perspective. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about seeing ourselves the way that God sees us because God wants to use us even with all of our flaws. Sometimes we can't get past that point. So how do we change that perspective? Well, the best way to understand how God sees us and wants to use us is for us to get into his word. Now, remember the tool that Ehud used to gain his freedom was this double-edged blade, right? Paul tells us this in the book of Hebrews. He says, for the word of God is alive and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit. So just like Ehud found his freedom, we could find freedom in Christ in the word of God. And Paul says it's alive and active. But let me ask you today, is it really alive and active in your life? All right, so my challenge to you this week is for us to spend 15 minutes a day in God's word. And just 15 minutes a day reading the Bible can change the way that we see God and the way that he wants to use all of our unique abilities that he gave us. All right, second thing is this. I need to make myself available to God's opportunities. You know, just like Moses told God about all of his issues, all of his challenges, all of his struggles, and all the reasons that he couldn't do what God was asking him to do, it's really easy for us to come up with all these reasons that we can't do what God's asking us to do as well. But let me turn that question around for you. What can you do? Can you check in on a friend that you haven't talked to in a while? Maybe you can pray for our global missions team. One just went to Germany this week. Maybe you feel like God's calling you to serve in our our Ridge Kids group or in our student ministry program. Maybe God's calling you to lead a home group. And I know some of these things can sound awful scary, but this week, let's be available to God and be willing to say yes to things, even when we might feel unqualified to do so. And the last thing is this, I need to trust God in my weakness. You know, I've been thinking about it while I was preparing this message, and I think that Ehud probably wondered why he was left-handed. I think that he wondered why was he so different than everybody else around him? Because you know what? It can feel awful lonely whenever you feel like you're different, you're the outcast, and you don't understand why. But you know what? God had a purpose for his uniqueness, and God has a purpose for your uniqueness and mine as well. The Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So this week, let's trust God and let him use us in all of our weaknesses and all the unique ways that he made us. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you so much for being here with us this morning. I thank you that you made us so unique. God, we sometimes struggle with the way that we are. We feel like we have a weakness. We feel like we have a struggle or a challenge that we try to get through. We don't know know why we have those things, but God, we know that you use people in all their flaws for your glory. God, I pray that this week you would let us trust you through those times. And when we don't understand why we're going through certain things or certain obstacles, we know that you have a plan far greater than anything we could fathom. 
We pray that we would, tr- we would trust you through those times. God, be with us this week. Keep us all safe in Christ's name, amen. Don't forget to pick up your judge's reading guide as you leave today. You guys have a fantastic week. We will see you next time.